Each compound is divided in two. Single men on one side, families on the other. Let me be crystal clear. Immigration detention is administrative detention. It is not a prison sentence. You have a duty of care to the UNCs, unlawful non-citizens. Their dignity must be upheld in culturally, linguistically, gender and age appropriate ways. Do not engage with the Tamils on the roof. Do not look at them or acknowledge them in any way. What are they doing up there? Do you speak Tamil? No. Shame. Because if you did, you could ask him. Now, all of you have been issued with a Hoffman knife. Please keep this on your person at all times. Look out for hanging hazards, hooks, pipes, etc. Please check these regularly throughout your shift. Greetings, I'm Kate Blanchett, and I'd like to welcome you to Postplay, Stateless. In this episode, we're going to hear from two people who know firsthand what it's like to work in an immigration detention centre. Sajida Summer worked at a Darwin detention centre in Northern Australia and witnessed the trauma that detainees suffered whilst being held, often for many, many years. The moment I step into the detention centre, there is this whole load of sadness taking over me. It just seems that pain is in the air. And what I saw with the clients was the same thing. They were even more broken. Paul Folber was a guard at the Baxter Detention Centre. Guards were often put in the difficult position of being friends and confidants to the detainees, but also having to pass along very unpleasant news to them from their immigration caseworkers. I understand the frustration, desperation at their wits end. If I get sent home, I'm going to be executed. And we had to deal with the anger from these guys wanting answers. Casting the role of Najiba, Amir's wife and Stateless, was a real challenge because it was difficult to find Afghan women and girls who felt free to act. Sajida was magnificent because her presence on set was warm and giving and generous, and the chemistry between her and the actor Faisal Bazi, who plays her husband Amir, was really strong. We knew immediately that Sajida was the one. My name is Sajida Sama, and in Stateless I played the very important and lovely role of Najiba, which is, uh, I would say, really close to my heart. Najiba is an Afghani woman who is trying to flee Afghanistan with her husband and two daughters. In this scene, I'm very scared because we have lost all of our money. And our daughter is very ill. So I'm begging my husband Amir to try and get our money back so that we can buy medicine for our daughter who has malaria. I have never done any acting before. This was my first ever acting experience and I'm so lucky that I got my first acting chance in such a magnificent story such as Stateless. It just came to me through word of mouth. I got the message that if I know someone in the Afghani community who would be interested in doing some acting in a drama. I didn't even feel that I had to do a lot of acting in there because 
I just felt it. I just felt who Najiba is and how she would react in a situation like that. It all came from my heart with a lot of feelings, I would say. That's why this role is really special to me and very close to my heart. Sajida and her family fled Afghanistan when she was a child. Later, following the fall of the Taliban, when Sajida was a young woman, she returned to Afghanistan, where she got married and worked for the United Nations. We used to have uh, a lot of scholarships coming in for Afghans, so that's where I saw the opportunity. And my friend, who's really close to me, is actually the one who gave me the news for Stateless as well. She's the same friend that I worked with. She applied for the scholarship and she encouraged me to apply for it as well. Uh, she said, it's mainly for women and you can do it, come on. I said, look, I cannot leave my son behind, who was about eight years old at that time. The scholarship was funded by UNEFM Australia and the manager was uh, very supportive of us women. It took about 10 months or so and then I got the news that I can bring my son with me and in the beginning it was like I'm just going to go for the two years of scholarship and then I will be back. But at the back of my mind I always knew that I was not going to go back because it was a really challenging life back there. The main challenge was your freedom. My freedom was very important for me. Although I was given into marriage very young, right after finishing high school, and mind you that high school back in Pakistan is just till grade 10, so, you know, I was a teenage mom. Once you are married, then authority is transferred from your family to an other family. You need to have a male support to make decisions, to be able to do things you want to do. And if you want to go to study, if your father doesn't allow you, that's it. That's the end of it. I was getting exhausted with this process. And then when the authority is transferred from your family to another family, that family is a stranger and it becomes even harder. So when I got the news for this scholarship, this was my chance. So that's how I came to Australia. After studying for some time at the University of Tasmania, Sajida got a job as a translator at a detention centre in Darwin in Northern Australia. What we would do is participate in interviews of refugees with their immigration officers and also with the medical team if uh, they had any health issues, mental issues, or if they were having any surgery outside the detention centre. So we would go and travel with them in and out. Inside the detention centre, the environment is really tense. Hey! You take my clothes? Huh? Just borrowed it. All my life, I have fought a war against the people who take what is mine. Daribena! 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 Okay, here! The moment you step into the detention center, personally, what I experienced is this whole load of sadness taking over me. From your first check in the morning through your last checkout in the afternoon, it just uh, seems that pain is in the air. That's how I felt it. That's uh, how my feeling was. And what I saw with the clients was the same thing. They were even more broken. They were going through it. I was all right, I could get out. I would just come home, sleep, and then go again. But with the clients, uh, they were trapped in that sad environment. They were there all the time with their kids and families, and the kids would just play in, in, in a yard where there is nothing except some wires, as it's shown in Stateless. 
Every face you see is concerned. Everyone uh, you see is worried and no energy. They're drained. And the reason for that, I would say, is the waiting periods uh, that they go through. And the wait doesn't start from the moment uh, they step into the detention center. The wait starts the moment they are preparing for this journey from home. It started two years ago when he said goodbye to his family. They have already gone through so much in 12 months or 24 months. By the time they get to the detention center, they're already broken. And then suddenly another breakage starts. So it's like you are broken, your pieces are broken into more pieces. You are trapped, you cannot go anywhere. And everyone they talk to, it's the same answer. Your case is in process, case file pending. So pending has no time frame. Even the case officer who is dealing with the case has no answer. So no one was getting any certain answer except the word your case is pending and we don't know. We don't know is the answer actually in the, in the detention center and it is a really, really painful answer. It's not only the detainees who struggle within the walls of a detention centre. Those who work there also feel an enormous amount of pressure. There are a lot of restrictions around expressing or talking about uh, the internal side of the detention centre with your colleagues or uh, with people around you. Personally, I can speak for myself. Uh, It was all pain. The moment I stepped in, it would just take over me. And it was really hard for me to to put it back and leave it uh, behind and then go home and have a good sleep and come back. It would go with me and then come back with me. There are counseling services available for staff uh, if they are having a lot of mental stress. I personally was not interested in that sort of therapy or counseling because the pain that I felt, I I felt like the other person don't know what I'm talking about. And sometimes that was the problem with the clients as well. They couldn't connect with their therapist because the therapist has had no idea where the person is coming from. So there was a sort of misunderstanding between all the parties. Cultural misunderstandings could be witnessed in so many different interactions within the detention centres. Sometimes it was between the detainee and the therapists, but often it was between the case officers and the detainees. I'll advise you that this interview will be recorded. The recording is to help us make an accurate decision and will not be given to anyone in your home country. I am a refugee. I ask for a protection visa. I understand English. Please. My wife... My children, I I must find them. We were separated. Can you start by telling me your full name? Yes. Um, My name is Ahmad Amir. So your surname is Amir? No. Um, His first name is actually Amir. So Ahmad is his surname? No, that's actually his common name. Not only are there breakdowns in communication among the immigration case officers and the detainees, There are also complex struggles amongst the detainees themselves. 
these people that are coming from all around the world, I would say, or from third world countries or war zones, they belong to different groups and they have these political tension or disagreements back home. And then they suddenly meet face to face in a place which is really small, such as detention center. And then they have their, I would say, sort of cold war uh, going on between themselves. And if you were a woman and you were trapped in a place with strangers in a society that you had never been or confronted men uh, like this before, you suddenly come into an environment where you have to stay, for example, in a family compound where you share yard with some other male members of another family. Every little thing is a challenge and bit by bit it increases uh, your stress and it builds up to the point that sometimes uh, it explodes and in a very bad way. I must say that stateless is very close to reality, but it can only cover that much in the life of people who went through this journey and who came to the detention center. They go through this on everyday basis. It's not just a six-part drama series, you know. The daily life is totally different to that. And the reality is worse than stateless because uh, the series can only cover that much of the reality. But then there are other realities that play into parts, such as whether you are a male or a female, whether you are getting in conflict with uh, a person who is against your tribe or against your sect or whether you were in the favor of the political um, party that fought the other political party. So all these conflicts suddenly uh, come together in a very small place, in a strange country where you are nothing. And then once you get into fight, you are in a big, big trouble and you have to endure really uh, severe consequences uh, for your actions, which makes it worse. But uh, for me, as an interpreter, we were really bound to not speak a word outside the assignment or whatever is being said in the session. So you are only allowed to speak that sentence, not more, not less. Whatever the person says, you just have to exactly translate that sentence back. Even if they're asking me for help, I have to immediately bring it to the attention of the officer the person has asked me for help or, you know, anything, anything. Sajida was employed as an interpreter, so she was technically on the outside of the detention centre. She was allowed to go home every night after she finished work. But she sympathised, empathised and more than identified with the detainees who were trapped each night within the detention centre. They come here after so many hardships, after being caught on the way several times, after risking their life by droning in the sea or making a safe passage through the sea if they're lucky enough. And then once everything else is passed, the good news is that so-and-so has, let's say, for example, arrived to Australia. Now he is safe. But then another journey starts. It's totally different to what you have faced back home. Back home, you knew the language. You could go out. You had friends, even though the security is bad. Yes, you have your connections. You all share the same pain. And it's it's the whole society that uh, is suffering with you. But then suddenly, when you arrive in a place like that, you are trapped in a box. You have no rights. Uh, no one knows you. You don't have any acknowledgement here. You have no name. You are just a number. Occupancy check complete. We have five UNCs unaccounted for. BT345, POR076, PEL139, IND143, IND058. 
it's just like, you know, you suddenly start becoming ash again. You go into pieces and then you have to find a way to gather your pieces and build yourself as a human being and start from zero if you are lucky enough to get out of the detention center. So then you finally emerge from the detention center with your scars, your loss of identity and your trauma. And yet another mountain stands in front of you. Outside is another level of challenge, again, to build your life, to get financially independent, to find work with no work experience. You don't have qualifications from Australia and third world country qualification is almost nothing. Yeah, I experienced it myself. I had to start it all over again from zero. Every step of life for refugees is um, full of challenges and full of pain and things they go through. Yes, we hear in the news. Yes, we talk about it. Yes, we think we have read enough to know about it. But going through is a totally different thing. It stays with you for the rest of your life, uh, no matter how how good or how stable you are in a developed country or in a safe country. But you have your broken pieces with you that you have gathered and you are carrying them, trying to, with the pieces that you are trying to put together. You become a totally uh, different human being by going through this process. Uh, you, you are not the same anymore. When researching and writing the series, Elise McCready spoke to many, many people who'd worked in immigration detention centres. Six months before we started filming, she met ex-immigration detention officer Paul Folber, who generously shared stories of his experiences working at one of Australia's largest onshore detention centres. Paul's perspective was invaluable, and he quickly became one of Elise's go-to contacts during the final scripting process. My name is Paul Folber. I'm a former guard at the Baxter Immigration Reception and Processing Centre in South Australia. I worked there from 2002 until 2007, and I was a consultant with the TV crew for Stateless. I spent quite a bit of time with Jai Courtney, who plays Camp Stanford. We got to spend a bit of time one-on-one, uh, -on -one, having a few beers, discussing how it was to work in that place. The set was 100% how the uh, Baxter Detention Centre actually was. It was absolutely bizarre to walk in there. Much like the character of Cam, Paul was a young man when he first underwent training to become a detention officer. Even younger, in fact, than the character of Cam. To become a detention officer back in those days, it was only an eight-week training course. I was a 21-year-old baller maker, and to go from joining bits of metal together into a compound with up to 100 detainees was uh, quite daunting. So why would a young man leave a steady and secure job as a boiler maker in order to work at a detention centre? I decided to apply for a job at Baxter mid-2002. One of my friends from high school was working out there. I was living in Adelaide, just finished an apprenticeship, so the money wasn't great. My mate said, good money, good job, you know, meet a lot of people. There is the chance of international travel. I actually did two trips overseas. You put your name forward, and I think within a week I had an, an interview, so I had to drive three hours to Port Augusta for the interview. And um, they said, look, when can you start? I think I had three weeks to pack up a house with two young kids, find somewhere up here and start the training. Was it money-driven? Absolutely. You want to support your family. I remember being a young apprentice and you're sort, you know, putting money aside every week so you could just do your shopping. Whereas now, look, I've got money. I might go to New Zealand for 10 days on a holiday because I can. 
it just changed everything. I was able to buy a house and a nice car and have stuff that I've always wanted within, you know, six months of being there. It's not that I was greedy. It was just you trying to get ahead in life. And it was like the federal government was just handing it out. There was no budget for anything. If a compound got smashed to pieces, the uh, contractors would be in there the next day and it'd all be brand new again. I don't know about government budgets and that, but yeah, the money was there. And you know, if you wanted to earn it, it was quite easy to do so. And how comprehensive was the guard training? What did guard training actually involve? We had a lot of cultural diversity training. If I'm talking to a guy and his wife, I shouldn't really be making eye contact with her because that's just disrespectful to him. And then obviously you had the religious side of things. We had a large Muslim population out there. You know, if um, the guy's over there um, on his prayer mat praying, you don't talk to him. You let him finish his prayers. And we respected that. The language barrier was hard. A lot of people had never met someone that spoke English. That was difficult at times when you're trying to explain something and you're getting upset at them because they're not understanding and they're getting upset at you because they don't know what you're talking about. You had very well-educated people, doctors, lawyers, people out there that had better English than me. We asked what some of Paul's memories of his responsibilities as a guard were. Was he ever put in a difficult or compromised position? I remember they started a night shift one night and two immigration staff gave me a big pile of papers. They said, can you please give these to the compound delegates? The papers were in Arabic and Farsi. There was English on the back, but I didn't read it because it wasn't for me. I handed it to the compound delegates and I said, can you please pass this out? Half an hour later, I had 80 irate men come up to my office and start bashing on the window. It basically said, due to the constant unrest and riots and violence, if this continues, you will each be sent home to your um, place of origin. So me and a fellow officer had to try and calm these guys down and it didn't work. We end up fighting with these guys for probably four or five hours. There's windows smashing and chairs getting broken against the door trying to get in. It was a Friday night and immigration didn't work on the weekends. They thought, we'll give this to the staff, we'll go home and we don't have to deal with it till Monday. So yeah, obviously the uh, detainees took that frustration out on us. Staff did get injured and that was immigration passing the buck to us and we had to deal with the frustration and the anger from these guys wanting answers about this piece of paper. I understand frustration, desperation at their wits end. If I get sent home, I'm going to be executed. I heard stories of that actually happening from guys that got sent home because the guys that were still in Baxter used to have contact with family. Someone would be sent home and then you'd hear two weeks later, oh, he was executed. The other thing was you could be waiting for an immigration appointment and four o'clock in the morning, staff are going to come and get you and take you on an aeroplane and send you home. And that's how it happened out there. Following refusal of your application for a protection visa, you're being removed under no. Section 198. No, no, please, no, please. I have the more time. Officers you can't do this. You on your flight to Baghdad. My lawyer is speaking to the minister. They will let me stay. They will let me stay, please. I can't go back. If someone was going to be forcibly removed or repatriated to their country of origin, they weren't advised. It happened. Detainees were obviously living in fear, thinking, am I going to get sent home? Because the guy three doors down, he got sent home last week. You're lying in bed thinking, is it going to happen tonight? I just didn't understand the process. To see a young family packed up in the middle of the night and sent home, you know what I mean? Out of Baxter, we'd have rights most weeks. And you're talking hundreds upon thousands of dollars of property damage. But these people are obviously struggling with being there. We were pretty much paid as detention officers to look after them their health and welfare, to keep them in there 
immigration stuff wasn't our business. So there's a lot of unrest amongst the detainees. That's your department. The UNC's levels of frustration are clearly due to the pace in which immigration processes claims. That was quite hard to deal with because a 12-hour night shift, we'd sit out the front and have a couple of smokes and coffees and they'd tell you the whole story, you know, what had happened, how they come about to be in Australia. See, I spent a lot of time in the family compounds. That was very interesting. I'd be up until midnight playing pool or guitar or PlayStation with these kids and, you know, they will talk about the trip in the boat and how bad it was. We sit there and talk about things on the outside. Top Gun doesn't make any Mate, sense. Mate, how many times I told you you don't watch it for the plot, all right? <laughs> it's about the action sequences. Yeah, of course. You just got to enjoy the ride. Yeah, of course. But on 15th view, you notice things. All right, well, I'll put in a request for DVDs post-1989. How about that? Thank you. All right. Over a week, you'd, you'd find out so much about these detainees. That was a frustrating thing, too, because we were also messengers for the immigration guys. We'd have this rapport with these detainees. And you're not friends, but you're friendly. And then immigration would come up and pass you something to pass on to these people. And that message didn't come from us. We're the messenger. And, you know, all of a sudden, bang, we're getting it you know, attacked. There was a few incidents when I did get injured, but that was just part of the job. They'd take their frustration out on us, but they didn't mean to, if you know what I mean, because immigration would never be there. The Department of Immigration, Dimmer, they decide all that. Dimmer are ghosts. They under your eyelids when you sleep. They in walls watching you, but you never see them. You could have the best rapport with these guys, but when it turns pear-shaped, you've got to pick a side. And detention officer obviously on one side and detainees on the other, and that's just how it was. Not only did the guards face major challenges in the workplace, but the way they were represented in the local media was generally very unfavourable. Guards were portrayed by the media as being heavy-handed or thugs. If you had to go down the shops in your uniform, you would get abused sometimes. I did a couple of times. Why do you want to work there? You're a scumbag. These people need to be set free and you're just there to give them a hard time. The frustrating thing was that you couldn't comment to the media. That was government policy. That was quite frustrating for everyone that worked there. I had a mate hospitalised one night and you just really want to tell the world how it really was out there, but you just couldn't. Because if you did, you'd lose your job. You have no idea what we deal with on a daily basis. A lot of people think they're just refugees, they're in there, they're just doing their time, it's quiet. And it was the total opposite because, you know, there was all that frustration and anger. They had limited access to lawyers and the outside world. So it was the uh, frustration taken out and it was us. You just wanted people to know what it was really like. It was a complex working environment for everyone involved, but particularly for Paul, because of his family history. My grandparents were immigrants from the Czech Republic back in the 1940s, and they came to Australia on a boat, and they were in an immigration detention facility in Victoria for uh, quite a few months before they were released. My opinion towards detainees, refugees, boat people, illegal immigrants, it did change after working there for a few years. What you saw on the telly, on the news about the conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, places like that, and you thought, why are these people coming here? Like, we don't need these people here. And that's being honest. And then with my grandparents coming over, fleeing exactly the same situations, Nazi Germany back in the day, I sort of thought to myself, it's exactly the same situation that my grandparents went through. After being there five years, absolutely, my opinion changed. You could see where they're coming from. You could see why they actually are trying to find somewhere safe to live and raise a family. Yeah, my opinion changed 100% towards the end, obviously. Now that Paul has seen Stateless, 
I was interested to hear what he thought would resonate with the viewers. I really hope the audience take away both sides of the story. You know, detainees have a a really horrific experience starting at point A back home and coming all the way across here and they'd be stuck in a place like that. But I think the audience needs to also realise the staff out there had an absolutely horrific time. How are you meant to process that? I think it's important for the audience to see what Stateless is trying to deliver because it's not just an Australian issue. I'm sure in the States, in the UK, throughout Europe, you've got these similar detention facilities and I'm pretty sure you'd have very similar situations happening every day. People are fleeing from persecution in war-torn countries looking for safety and they get stuck in these prisons. We won't say that they're not, they are. We just call them immigration processing facilities. For all the challenges that Paul faced, he's also had the opportunity to hear some of the incredibly uplifting stories about former detainees who were eventually granted refugee visas in Australia and have since gone on to lead fulfilling lives as proud and dedicated members of their host communities. One night after work, when I was still employed at Baxter, I thought I might go to the city and have a few drinks and ended up at the casino. There was a a DJ or a band and I was walking through and this man came up to me and goes, I know you. And it was a little short Iranian man that I had at Baxter for quite a few years. And he said, you must come for a drink. I have more friends here. I thought, oh, we'll see what happens here. So I went over to the bar and there was four or five other guys that were all detained at Baxter. I wasn't sure how this was going to pan out because these people didn't have very nice experiences out there. But we ended up having a few drinks and chatted about things. There's a lot of success stories. One of the uh, young lads we had in the uh, family compound years ago, he's now a bank executive in Sydney. You'd never have thought it when you met him. And I know there's another guy who's uh, done very well in real estate. And I bumped into a guy only last week here in Port Augusta, and he's done really well for himself. He's a coordinator with a large construction firm. He's just come back from two years as a coordinator in Singapore. He was very limited English when I first met him came from a really bad situation. I had a bit to do with him out there and now he's loving life. He's got a wife, he's got two young kids and he's travelled the world. He said, I'm just grateful. I'm Kate Blanchett and my special thanks extend to my guests in this episode, Paul Folber and Sajida Samar. You've been listening to Postplay Stateless. Join us next time when I sit down with the extraordinary Gillian Triggs, who is the Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at UNHCR, the UN Refugee Agency. I met a 12-year-old in detention and she'd lost her entire family and made her way across the Indian Ocean. And she told me all about how she was terrified of the sharks, she was terrified of the waves, dehydrated, desperate loss of her parents. But she was completely calm and composed. And then she said, I've been here in detention for a year with no schooling. And then she burst into tears. And I'll also be catching up with my co-creators and dear friends, Elise McCready and Tony Ayres, as we discuss what has happened in more recent years in regards to the ongoing global displacement crisis. When I was writing it, I'd often wake up in a kind of cold sweat thinking, what if I get it wrong? And this responsibility of these stories that were being told to me. It's up to the people who have a voice to speak and or give an opportunity for other people who don't have a voice to be heard. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Stateless is streaming now on Netflix. Netflix.